Hi, welcome to Christ Covenant Sermon Talkback. This podcast is a ministry of Christ Covenant Church in Atlanta, where our pastors and members dig deeper into the sermon and its text together. Our goal is to consider new questions and observations while looking at the passage so that we might more practically apply God's word to our life. If you have a question for our pastors, please feel free to engage our text to pastor line at 404-465-1737. Or if you'd like to find more resources from our church like this one, please visit ChristCovenant.com forward slash resources. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy our sermon talk back. Well, we have come to the end of the Exodus. We have exited uh, the land of Egypt, and um, the people of Israel uh, are being led through the wilderness. That's how the book ends, uh, by the Spirit of God who's dwelling in their midst in the tabernacle. I want to talk about the whole book and just some general reflections on this whole series. It was an 11-week series, which... You know, we, we're not like a super long series, sermon series church. Uh, and so this might be, I, I, I could be speaking out of turn here. This might be the longest consecutive week series. I mean, we've done like 12 week series, but usually we split them up here or there. I mean, the John series is going to end up being like a 40 week series, but it's going to be over several years split up. So consecutive weeks, even though there was the one Lou week, um, it's, it's probably the longest we've done and it's it's been a lot of fun but but we ended with Exodus 40 I'm joined with I'm joined by Jennifer McClish and will Kynes today and one of the things I promised will is that we would walk through the Exodus so wh- why do you want just the mere village parson to walk you through rather walk through the tabernacle <laughs> why would you want the mere village parson to walk you through the tabernacle when one of the world's great Old Testament scholars could so so help us Kind of why don't you take us on a little bit of the tour of the tabernacle? I didn't make it as technical um, because you know, I talked about it in, in terms of these things as veils um, for the glory of God. God cannot just strictly dwell among them, so he's veiled by these layers, if you will, of, of the tabernacle that uh, was erected. So I don't know if you think that's a helpful thought or not, but help us understand why those elements are there, what they're doing, um, and maybe what they were. Yeah. Uh, okay. So I'm just going to do this briefly. I, this is one of those things that you could just dig into for a long time. Uh, but in terms of the general vision that the tabernacle is giving us of who God is and how we relate to God, there's all of this symbolism. And some of it we don't even totally understand, but it's not too hard to see some of the basic ideas. So you walk in through the entrance into the tabernacle. The tabernacle has this kind of out outer wall on it and you're in the outer court and <clears throat> the way i like to think about that outer court is it's communicating our distance from god even mm-hmm. as we come into his presence we're still distant from him and so you have an altar there <clears throat> excuse me where there are burnt offerings that are done for sin because we're sinful and then there's a bronze basin there where we have to cleanse ourselves right because again we are sinful we're distant from god uh, but through those practices, we can come closer to God. And so we then you move into the first of these veils, so to speak, which is the holy place. And so within that holy place, now we get to 
experience something of God's presence. Now, I keep on saying we, but we would have never, you know, this was only something that special priests could do uh, mm -hmm. on special times. And so there is, again, the distance is communicated in that regard. But when you go into the holy place, you've got the table of the presence where there is bread put there, always there for God. Uh, this bread of the presence representing God's presence, the seven branch lampstand where there is, it's supposed to have light shining all the time. And then the altar of incense, which also is supposed to be burning this incense, all of those representing God's presence. And then you move through that, that true veil that you talked about. The veil is a veil. <laughs> <laughs> and you move through that veil into what's called the Holy of Holies. And that's where the Ark of the Covenant is. And that's where God is seen to dwell in the fullest sense. And that's the part that only the high priest could enter once a year after performing all of these rituals to, to cleanse himself. And he would go in, as you said in the sermon, with a rope tied around his ankle because if he were to die in the presence of God, no one could go in there to pull his body right. out. So you have to drag him out. So... As you move into the tabernacle, you're moving closer and closer into God's presence. And so there's both symbolism of the distance that our sin puts us uh, from God, but also symbolism of God has chosen to dwell with these people, which is an amazing thing. And that is, I just think, again, to the end of the sermon, the amazing invitation of Jesus that now we can behold the glory of God, that uh, with an unveiled face, uh, mm -hmm. uh, even more completely than Moses, to look into the face of God, if you will, uh, in the gospel and in uh, His love for us in Christ Jesus, and all, obviously, ultimately, in you know, in a sense, in a uh, in an actual way in the in His kingdom, um, because of the atoning and life giving work of of the Lord. Mm -hmm. um, and all of this was assigned to that. You know, that Jesus is the true temple. Jesus is the true uh, place where the glory of God dwells, and uh, his invitation is to come and see. It makes me think of the very beginning of the sermon series where, and I think you mentioned this earlier, Will, of just the theme of being delivered um, from working uh, for the Pharaoh, and but delivered to the worship of the Lord. But just even in that distance that you were talking about, and how miserable it is the far, the farther you are away from God, and they were so, um, and they were crying out to Him, and He heard and responded, mm. and you could just see this like, you know, God is so seemingly so far away in the very beginning of the book, and how He's just moving closer and well, closer good. and closer. Mm -hmm. But it's also bringing joy um, and just a really beautiful culture and um, complete, uh, just just night and day compared to how they were living in Egypt. And the Bible tells us that over and over again, that in the presence of the Lord, there's fullness of joy. Mm. And then the people re you know, experienced that even when Christ came in their midst. So there's definitely a progression. And it's good. It's only and, good. And that, I mean, that's a big idea in scripture, right? I mean, the presence of God. Uh, obviously, Jackson talked about that in the communion service. The What does it mean to be in the presence of God? What does it mean um, to come closer and closer to God? And, and, and a lot of theologians, in, I don't know if you have thoughts on this, Will, but have pointed out that that's a paradigm really for the whole that the temple, if you will, spatially is a paradigm for kind of the whole of creation. Um, you have the dry land, you have Eden, 
and then you have the garden, mm-hmm. right? You kind of have the the outer courts, if you will, of creation, the holy place of creation, Eden, and then the place where God actually dwelled, the garden that was in the midst of Eden. Um, I, I don't know, and, and that obviously carries through, you know, all the way through um, uh, the Bible in, 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 in different ways. That there might be some dispute on which themes of the Bible are actually kind of giving that pointing to that but i i know that's a that's a, a larger kind of hermeneutical understanding of of how these things have worked themselves out yeah right from the beginning from the creation story this idea of god's presence is there and it is often represented with imagery of a temple and so there are a lot of connections between genesis 1 and the way that the tabernacle is described uh and then there are similarities between Genesis 1, Genesis 2 then, in the presence of God in Eden, the tabernacle, then the temple in Israel. Israel itself as a nation where God dwells, a land where God dwells with his people. Uh, but then as you mentioned in the sermon, Christ picks up on that imagery, right? His body is the temple. Right. Our bodies become temples. The church becomes the temple in which God dwells. And then the picture we get in heaven, there is no temple. But the way that heaven is described is like the temple as it's described in Ezekiel. Uh, Ezekiel has this vision of the temple which gets picked up and used in uh, Revelation to describe what heaven will be like. So we will be in God's presence fully in heaven as we enter into this temple-like experience. But we're getting a taste of that through Christ, but then also in the church, which is God's temple today. And that's such a distinctive um, Christian idea of being with God and what good news that is. Um, I don't think there's any other religion that actually like heaven is described as being with God. Right. It's more like receiving personal yeah, pleasures and, right. you know, like a paradise. But, um, but it really is, that is the sweetness of the gospel is that you're with God. Yeah. And I would say that, I mean, the imminence of God is kind of a uniquely Christian thing um, that God could be so knowable. I mean, mm-hmm. the reward is to know God. Well, what does that mean? I mean, the, right. the reward is to commune with God. The reward is to be in God's presence. I mean, that is a, you know, that idea is at best uh, uncommon uh, among other world religions. Right. Um, but you can also see how it transforms people's lives. I mean, this is why Christians are so prophetic in so many ways and that they, um, they don't experience, you don't have to experience fear, um, anxiety, suffering, the way that other people do because mm-hmm. you can know God in it and there's like he's more man made more manifest to you. I mean, it's like we are constantly talking about the presence of God and understanding him and that's how we, you know, move forward. Uh, it's part oh, go, ahead. Uh, go ahead. I was gonna say this part of what makes the tabernacle so amazing within Exodus, because if we think back to Exodus twenty, you know, that's where the Ten Commandments appear. But at the end of that passage, the people see the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound right. of the trumpet mm. and the mountain smoking. And they were afraid and trembled and they stood far off. And they say to Moses, you speak to us and we'll listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. And so the presence of God is terrifying in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And, and we don't, I don't think, appreciate how radical an idea it is that God invites us into his presence in a way that we would find inviting because even the people in Exodus are, they just cannot even stomach the thought of being right. close to right. God. 
Right. Right. And even, I mean, and even God himself is saying, if I was in their presence, I would consume them. And so, uh, which is just, it's, it, it, you know, he loves, he loves them. Obviously at that point, he's, I guess he's angry with them, but <laughs> it, it is a statement of God's holiness and wrath and might and power and glory. Um, and so however could we come into the presence of God? Well, God's presence could be among them if there's a veil, right? Mm-hmm. Or we are somehow made right with God. And of course, that's right. exactly what Jesus does. Right. I and that's why you just... have the altar. Well, I was just going to say, that's why you have the altar and you have the basin to cleanse yourself. You need something right. that pays for your sin because you can't be sinful in God's presence. And then, yes, Hebrews mm-hmm. picks up on that imagery and says, no, but Christ is the ultimate sacrifice. He's paid the price for it. Um, for our sin in a way that enables us to come into God's presence without fear and trembling. Yeah, which uh, is an amazing description of what Jesus has done for us um, with an unveiled face. uh, uh, Because of his sacrifice, once for all, we come into uh, the glory and the very presence of God. Um, I want to look at some things that we maybe missed in the series. Um, I know that we... I know that we jumped around a little bit or really, as I kept saying, it was a survey of the book of Exodus, but you know, Exodus 34, one of those passages that we probably should have looked at Exodus 33. I mean, I, I referenced it yesterday, but to me, I think that's actually a helpful place to look. Um, we see the anger of God. We see Moses away from the people in the tent of meeting. And then, of course, we see Moses uh, being veiled, if you will, by the rock um, in order for the presence of God to pass before him. So, yeah, what are some what are some places that you're like, man, it, it would have been really good to spend a little more time here as we think about kind of the art, overarching narrative of the book of Exodus? So you mentioned Exodus 33 and 34. I've just been reading this passage in Hebrew with my Beeson students. And I I love that sequence from Exodus 32 through 33 and 34, because in 32, as you talked about in the sermon, there's, it's sin. And it's so, it's sin in its most disgusting form. It's right as God is making his covenant with his people and they're turning against him in this terrible way. But then 33 and 34, I mean, it starts halfway through 32, where Exodus is, where Moses is intervening on behalf of the people. But what had never really struck me before reading through it with my Hebrew students this last month is how Moses just does not give up. God keeps on conceding things to him and saying, yes, okay, um, I'm going to forgive you. And Moses says, great, but if you don't go with us, we don't want to go. And God's like, mm-hmm. okay, I'll go with you. And then Moses says, yes, but I need to know what you're like. I need to know your character, reveal your name to me. And so then God says, yes, okay, here's my character. This is what I'm like and describes himself in this beautiful way in 34, 6, and 7. And even after that, Moses comes back to him again and, impl- and pleads with him once again to come with him. Uh, and so it's that the persistence of the mediator on behalf of his people, again, a great picture of what Christ does on our behalf. Mm. Uh, Moses does not give up on the people. uh, And in the same way, Christ doesn't give up on his people. It's just a great picture of that. You also see in Exodus 32 to 34, God's character as described in 34, 6 and 7, 
demonstrated. Right? So Exodus 34, 6 and 7 is God describing himself as the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And that all sounds great, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And then we get this big but. <laughs> but. but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, the children's children of the third and the fourth generation. Uh, and frequently the Old Testament does this. It'll make these grand statements. And to understand those statements, you have to read the narratives around them. And that's what you see God doing with the people. They sin in this terrible way. And he does punish sin. He demonstrates himself to be holy and just, but he also shows great mercy on the people and doesn't give up on them altogether. And so you see a bit of how that the nature of God is both holy and righteous, but also merciful and loving plays out, even in reading that self-description within its narrative context and and really like the, the i think that's the key verse the and obviously that verse is mentioned you know many times throughout the old testament um or that idea at least Half yeah the verses the verse itself is cited eight times word for word in the old testament and then alluded yeah. to a wow. whole bunch of other times yeah right yeah i i've often said if you made a play, there was this old play called A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to Forum. You ever seen that? No. Yeah, it's, it's a great little play. It's funny. It's it's yeah. funny. Okay. It, funny thing happened on the way to Forum. But throughout the play, there's this character that just keeps walking in front of the stage. Like, it's just randomly in the middle of the action, there'll be this like random character. And so it actually is a, a great little, you know, feature of the play right. because it kind of keeps your attention like, yeah. And and I almost like imagine if I wrote a play called The Old Testament, there would be this like random character that uh, every once in a while would walk in front of the stage and say, the Lord, the Lord, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Nice. You know, and, and that would just keep happening over and over. And, and I do think that that idea, this Exodus 34 idea, is the tension of the Old mm -hmm. Testament. How is mm -hmm. God going to be both merciful and gracious and slow to anger? And how is he also going to no, by no means clear the guilty and visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And, and however he's going to resolve that, which we don't really know, but we know both of those things are true. What Moses says right after that, again, gets to a lot we were talking about yesterday. Moses bows his head, he worships, and then he says, please be in the midst of us. Yep. We're a stiff-necked mm -hmm. people, but pardon our sin and be in the midst of us. And I think this gets back to the idea of the man. I'm really like wishing we would have preached this now. Like the, the idea <laughs> of the presence of God, right? Like, like what we need, and this is kind of what I was trying to say yesterday. Like we need to be in the presence of God. Like yes. that's the beauty of Revelation 21. The God's dwelling place is now with man, and now everything is good. It, you know, everything is right. Everything is as it should be. The, there's no tears. There's no crying. There's no pain. There's no death. And so, and that only happened because God somehow resolved this merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and not clearing the guilty. And of course, we know that that resolution only happens in Jesus. I think it's really uh, profound to see again Moses's faith. It reminds me of when we talked about Abraham, where you're like, how does Abraham know to ask God? Uh, but does he understand, like, um, you know, that the sin of one will be accounted to all and that the righteousness of one will right. be you know imputed to everyone like how does he understand these things about god to keep um like that he even intercedes on behalf of sodom and then you see the same thing in moses 
where you he understands enough about God where it's just complete faith. He trusts him. It's so instructive to us to remember that faith comes first and then comes understanding. I mean, something as profound as this, where he's leading these people in God's, in many ways, I mean, he he knows what he needs to do. And yet the only thing he really knows is that he can trust God and that God needs to be in their presence. Like, But like you said, he doesn't know how he's going to reconcile these two. Mm-hmm. The other uh, thing that we were talking about right before we got on is just the theme of the whole book. And I mentioned it yesterday, and I mentioned it in a couple other sermons, just this idea of service to Pharaoh and then ser- to service of the Lord or service to Pharaoh to service of Yahweh. And you had a really interesting observation, Will, that uh, I thought was a pretty beautiful observation that kind of bookends the book for us. Would you Would you kind of walk us through that? Yeah, I was just thinking in light of the sermon how we end with the people of Israel creating, building a place to meet with God, where their slavery at the beginning of the book was also building, but it was building for the Pharaoh, the Pharaoh forcing them to build things that would glorify him. Uh, and I think that does point to, you know, when we think of Exodus as the people being taken from slavery to worship, it's the same Hebrew word used in both cases uh, that is used for slavery and worship. Um, but it's a totally different type of relationship to what they're doing, right? Instead of being mm-hmm. oppressed by a power that does not love them, mm-hmm. uh, to being moved to serving a God who mm-hmm. loves and cares him, cares for them, and who, as we've just said, whose presence is completely restorative and redemptive. Uh, it, I think that's an a, amazing contrast in the way the book begins with how it ends yeah that's 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 so good and this the fact every time moses did something and it keeps repeating the phrase um you know but he but the glory did not come down like they were building it and yet it was still all up to like god was the one who was coming down like they could not build something up to him um but then when he came down even moses couldn't go in with the glory mm. filling the place. And then because of course the only way in is through the sacrifice by blood. And then the next book, you know, kind of explains what all those sacrifices are going to look like. But again, just pointing to um, Jesus himself, which again, such a stark contrast between Pharaoh and God, that God himself will do what needs to be done um, for the people to be with him or for, to experience his presence. One of the things that Blake Rogers said, when we first started the series, I think it was like the first sermon, he said, Exodus is so paradigmatic. And mm. and he's right. I mean, you, you it's I think it's very difficult to understand like anything in the Bible basically without the, the book Exodus. of Exodus. Yeah. Um and so it's been an awesome study in that regard. Um, because I think for the believer or for somebody that's a skeptic and trying to kind of figure out what Christianity is all about. Like you have to at least understand some of the themes of this book, uh, that we are in bondage to the themes of the world and that God is calling a people for his own possession. God is calling, uh, a people that, you know, is to quote Exodus 34 again, will be his inheritance. Um, which I just think is an interesting, Mm -hmm. you know, expression, but God is calling this people to himself through whom he's going to make himself known and 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 the way some of the ways in which God makes himself known throughout the book show up right 
uh, he, he does show his wrath against them. He shows his mercy toward them. He shows his salvation toward them. He shows that he reveals himself to them. He's a revelatory God. Um, and I think that's interesting to think about. What are the things that we learn about God in the book of Exodus that we have to understand in order to understand kind of the rest of the Bible? Any, I mean, I mentioned a couple there. Any more in depth on that <laughs> or other ones, yeah. themes that you're like, okay, yeah, we should recognize this? Well, I think to what you were saying, the various ways in which God reveals himself in Exodus. I think you could argue that the book of Exodus is about God revealing who he is. I think you could say maybe every book of the Bible is about that. But the distinct ways that God reveals himself in Exodus is through his miraculous acts, right? In his conquest over Pharaoh. And when he reveals himself in that way, he shows himself to be a God who can make things right, who can uh, restore and save the oppressed. But then he reveals himself through his deliverer, his redeemer, Moses. He reveals himself through his law. His law, as you pointed out in your sermon, is this paradigmatic demonstration of what God desires for people in the way they relate to him and to one another. And he reveals himself through his people. He gives them that charge in Exodus 19.6 to be a holy priesthood uh, who demonstrate to the world what it means to be followers of this distinct God. And so they become a means through which he reveals his character to the world. And then we just talked about how he reveals himself through his direct revelation. He describes himself to us in 34, right. 6, and 7. So we get this variety of ways in which God shows us that he wants us to know him and who he is and what he is like. And then the lengths to which he will go to call us into a relationship with him so that we might experience his presence. Yeah, I mean, one of the things, too, that I, is kind of a hard thing to talk about, but a necessary thing, you could say God reveals himself through the exaltation and destruction of his enemies. Uh, hmm. God is showing himself to be in control, mm -hmm. you know, over and over. So there's just so much, everything from Will just said, where we see aspects of God's mercy and grace and kindness and love, to, I would just say, God's desire for his own glory to be known and remembered and sought after. So, but again, but, we said this maybe early on too. I think a lot of people kind of make up a God and what else would we do? If we didn't have revelation, of course we would make up the characteristics sure. of God, which is why I think the careful study of a book like Exodus is so important yes. for the church because no, 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 now we can actually know the real God and how he's revealed himself and who he's told us that he is. Yeah. Even in the destruction of his enemies and how much he hates sin and is against the people. It, uh, without Exodus, again, we wouldn't know why, I guess, God, or it's such a, a great picture of why he's so jealous for his glory. I mean, his enemies will destroy us. The sin will destroy us. Like he hates things that will destroy the people that he loves. And that's an idea that people get, um, you know, upside down on. They just think God shouldn't hate. They don't equate love and hate or see hate yeah. as being part of love. But that's actually what you see in a very dramatic way. I mean, this enemy was oppressive and impossible. Yeah, that's it's where sin it. goes. Right, yeah. Yeah. right. Well, it, it's been an awesome study. Will, you know, put together the primers, been helping us with some 
sermon research on this. Jennifer, you're amazing as always, and just your insights on God's word. Um, next up, we have a really fun series. I'm excited about it. We're going to actually look at 2 Corinthians 5, 16 through 21, which is a very like Christ covenant passage. Of course, it's been a lot to us as a church, um, who we are as uh, ambassadors for Christ, who we are as ministers of reconciliation, who we are as a new creation in Christ. And then of just, of course, the fact that in Christ we have been made the righteousness of God. So it's a very important passage, and we're going to look at it in three ways, kind of a gospel look, a kingdom look, and a missions look. So I'm really excited about that, and uh, I think it's a very different kind of series, but uh, important to consider the Word of God in in less of a survey, but more of a deep dive uh, kind of way also. So thank you guys for all your help on the series and for joining us for this talk back. So for Will Kynes and Jennifer McClish, I'm Jason Dees. Once again, thank you for listening to the Sermon Talkback podcast. If you have any other questions after listening, or if there's anything else you'd like to discuss with one of our pastors, please don't hesitate to engage our text to pastor line at 404-465-1737. And once again, if you'd like to find more resources from our church like this one, please visit ChristCovenant.com forward slash resources. Thank you and have a blessed week.